Welcome to Dr. D's Unplugged podcast. Insightful conversations on people, politics and planetary topics to better understand our complex world. My name is Dr. Derek Watson, Associate Professor at the University of Sunderland. Son of one of the most successful entrepreneurs of the northeast of England, Sergio decided to cut his own career in sales and marketing. Having graduated from the University of Sunderland, he embarked upon carving a successful career in sales and achieved regional and national recognition. However, the birth of his second child, Luna, set Sergio and his wife, Emma, on a different life-changing, or should I say, life-saving trajectory in setting up their nationally recognised Red Sky charity. We're delighted to have Sergio Petrucci in our seat today to share his insights into the world of sales, marketing, and in pursuing a real passion. In Sergio's case, Red Sky Charity, which resonates his beliefs and value. Sergio, welcome to our podcast. Thank you very much, Derek, and thanks for the warm welcome. It was a long wait, wasn't it? Waiting for you to come to the uh, radio radio station. Well, you know what they say, good things come to those who wait. Here I am. And we have a bucket of questions that have come in from students and colleagues at, at the University of Sunderland and wider afield. Um, I'm going to start off with a question. And I want you to walk us through your schooling experience. Okay, so um, just like everybody else, I completed my GCSEs and then I went on to do A-levels. Um, and that's when I realised the importance of education when it was a little bit too late because... I didn't get the results that I intended to get while I was doing my A-levels. Um, and I tried to get onto a course at Sunderland University on the back of that. And they were trying to shoehorn me into a course with computing and business. Well, computers wasn't really my thing. And marketing, advertising, that was what really excited me. And that's what I wanted to study at Sunderland University. And thankfully, somebody remembered my name from my application and uh, pulled me to one side and said, we can get you on an access course. Um, but he did give me an ultimatum. He said, if you didn't perform after year one, unfortunately, I would have to leave the university because they only wanted the best of the best here. Now, we've, I've got to be open. We, we know, we've known each other many, many years. I used to teach you way back in the day. Now, my question is, I just want to jump back to that schooling experience. Before the podcast, we had a ch- chat about, you know, your time at various schools. I believe that you went to private school and then you changed from private school um, to another institute. Um, what was your experience of um, how the schools motivated you with regards to learning? Um yeah, I did. I had a very fortunate upbringing and I was educated at a private school and an independent school in the city of Sunderland as well. Um, there was pros and cons to that. The The pros were that it was a very small school. The classes were small in size, so the teachers spent more time with you and recognised where your um, failings were so they could concentrate on those, but also push you towards excelling. Um the cons, I guess, would be the fact that it was so small and that it didn't really prepare for the outside world as such. And when I got my GCSEs, I went to a, a normal state school to do my A-levels and I couldn't really settle that well because of the size of the school. And I guess, really, the teachers were 
weren't as uh, focused on me as an individual as what they were at the first school that I went to. And I guess by that age, they would probably counter that and say, well, at that age in your life, you should be uh, prepared and um, at least have the the drive and determination for yourself and that you shouldn't need a teacher to push you forward. Um, but I, I guess I've always needed that little bit of encouragement uh, to believe in my own abilities. And that's what guess has stemmed me to go forward I've always had the confidence and I've worked from being 10 years old in my father's business so I've been used to communicating with people from all walks of life and whether that be a businessman a member of the public a customer anybody for that matter or dare I say somebody out the royal family well I'm going to bring in your father because I know that um, your father was qualified by or trained by L'Oreal in Rome Italian father, and he came to the northeast of England and set up a series of salons and also clothes shops. Now, before I get to my question, although I've taught many, many students over the years, I must admit, Sergio, I can still remember you being the smartest, most stylish, most Italian looking student on the campus at the University of Sunderland. <laughs> So I'm going to get to my question. Um, so your father was a successful entrepreneur in the Northeast. How did your father influence you? And you mentioned before, when you were 10 years old, how did your father influence you growing up with regards to insights into um, ethical business, treating people right, Sergio? What a great way to describe it, treating people right or treating people fairly and my father introduced me to the, the world of business from a very, very early age. To be honest with you, it was probably when I was six or seven. He would take us as a family to church in Sunderland City Centre uh, every Sunday morning. And after church, we had to take the towels from the hairdressers and take them home and wash them and then return back to the salon and hang them on the chairs so they'll be dry, ready for the Monday morning. Um, and that was routine for me. So I saw the effort that was getting put in. There was nobody to do the laundry. There was nobody to pick them up like there is today in salons. It was all hard work and self, self-driven self as well. So we talked about values. And for all, my father might not have recognised those at the time. Now in the current day, I know that those core family values were very, very strong influences in my upbringing and I say that because it's whether it's respect, professionalism. You, know, you talk about the way that I would dress for university. Um, I would always take pride, and that was instilled in me from an early age because my dad always said first impressions are what stays with people for their lifetimes. Um, and they did, whether that's sh- uh, polish shoes, clean hair, tidy hair. Um, my dad was always all about presentation. Now, I'm going to dig deeper because obviously we had previous conversations to the lead up to the podcast and you spoke about um, working at a very young age um, in one of your father's salons or clothes shops and you took umbrage because your father asked you to polish the floors or clean clean the premises and you were looking at a window cleaner which your father employed and you, you were saying to yourself, well, hold on a minute. I'm the the owner's son. 
why should I have to get on my knees, polish the floor when there's a window cleaner or a cleaner that could do that job? I did. Um, the way that you put these across makes me sound like a spoiled little brat. <laughs> not, not at all. <laughs> no, no, I know. But I think my dad was trying to tell me that, that no job should be beneath anybody and doesn't matter what level you're at. I think if you're willing to do the job yourself, then it's okay to ask someone else to do that job as well, as long as you can say that you've done that. And yeah, every Saturday morning, I used to work in the salon, sweeping the floor, washing people's hair. Um, and I would only get paid if he thought I'd worked hard enough for it. Now, 10 years old, 11, 12, all my friends would be going to the football match at Roker Park and I would have to work. But only if I, I worked hard, he would let me go at the match and then come back to to get the towels ready for the next day, for the washing day. Um, and... Do you know what? I, I did always question why why me, why when all my friends are out playing. But in hindsight, I'm so pleased he did because it led into a whole host of opportunities for me um, and an experience that I still draw on today. And I didn't just work for my dad. Um, after the salon, uh, you mentioned the clothes shops as well. Before I was allowed to work in the clothes shops, I had to prove myself at another uh, shop inside the town centre, and it was called T.Y. McGurk's. And I asked again the reason, why do I have to go and work for somebody else when I can go and work for you? But the reason being is my dad wanted to give me the skills from another's perspective, from another angle, from another management t- style. And I did, I learned I learned very a lot of things. Um, Bearing in mind that I wasn't the owner's son, um, nothing was given on a plate, and I learned a hell of a lot of experience from T Y McGurk's, which was an independent shop across the northeast, and I chose to work at the one in Sunderland. Yeah, sure, and um, you know I agree. Your father certainly um, t- taught you the ropes and values and ethical practices in running a business. Now the the question here is. Because your father had a string of salons, uh, salon shops, and also clothing shops, why didn't you take the easy option and just work for your father? But you didn't. What you did do, you started to craft your own career in sales and marketing. Why, why did you do that? I didn't really have a choice, to be fair. He wanted me to prove myself somewhere else. Um, he also realised that I was a... By this point, 14, 15 or 16 year old. Um, and he always used to employ uh, the most amazingly beautiful girls and women in the sal- in, in the clothes shops. And there was, he just said, there's no way I was going to be allowed to work in the salon, uh, sorry, in the clothes shops because I would be distracted all day long. So I had to go and work with a lot of lads <laughs> selling football boots on the ground <laughs> in a basement floor of a shop. But... Uh, you know, I've always been interested in advertising and marketing. And when I was allowed to go and work in the, the clothes shops, that's when I opened my eyes and I saw the Levi commercials with the likes of Nick Kamen or, you, you know, your popular artists, singers, pulling on a pair of 501s. I always remember taking the posters home and having them on my wall um, because that's what I aspired to. It was I didn't want to be a model clearly, but I just wanted to 
uh, see and feel and uh, experience what it is like to promote a brand, really, and that's that's where my interest started in the in the field of marketing. Yes, and I can agree or uh, divulge. I too had a pair of five hundred ones and wore them with pride, and um, and still wonder what happened to those jeans. Um, so you embarked upon sales and marketing in the car trade. Could you just enlighten us because you were very successful in winning local, regional and national awards? I did and you've skipped right through my time at university and I would love to touch on that because the, sure. co- the course that I did choose was in business admin and marketing management and where I learned quite a lot of things but nothing really prepares you for the real world. And when I did graduate, I thought that was it. I had a golden ticket, uh, a golden ticket that was that would open doors for me wherever I went because I got a good grade. I got a first in my dissertation. I got a 2-1 overall. And I thought that was it. I was made for life, really. But little did I know that that wasn't the real case. And you might say, well, why didn't you go and work for your dad? I guess I felt I wanted a little something more than that. And I'd already done that. I wanted something new and I wanted to see how big uh, I could make myself for working for somebody else. Now, that's where I got a job in sales and marketing. Well, in marketing, really, at Reg Vardy's. Uh, the, one of the campuses is named after um, the business. And so Peter Vardy was a customer of my dad's as well. And the hair salons and his whole family used to grow there as well. So we talked about this golden ticket that opened doors. I think the golden ticket that I really had was having the background that I have and also a name within the city that was reputable as well. So sh- sure enough, I, I started working as um, a marketing assistant for Reg Vardy's and we looked after the Ford and Nissan accounts and looked after the press. And um, yeah, it was great. I was always in communication with the general managers because they had to sign off the adverts clearly and know what the offers were. And uh, I made a bit of a mistake, really. It was a big mistake. I was I was naive, young, probably a bit immature at the time as well because in hindsight, I shouldn't have done what I did and I made a mistake when I thought I was actually on hold and I wasn't. I was just on mute on the phone to an external provider. And uh, I was having a conversation about them with my colleague across the desk. And needless to say, the complaint went in and I had to find a new job, whether that was within Reg Vardy's or elsewhere. And somebody gave me a chance and it was a, a guy, a lovely guy called Keith Story, you know, he opened a couple of doors for us and got me an interview within um, a dealership right on the, the main highway coming into Sunderland City Centre. Now... I'll tell you what dealership it was. It was the Fiat and Alfa Romeo dealership. And uh, I guess that's where I cut my teeth big time. I'd already worked hard in the salons and learned how to speak, knew how to put myself across in a right manner. So when I did have my interview, it was uh, with a Cockney. Cockney, and uh, he was called Andy Davies. And he was the franchise manager for the Fiat and Alfa Romeo brand within Vardy's. And he... He pulled me up, he said, first question, he said, all right, Sam, what makes you think you can sell a car then? And I just, without, a sh- not even a flicker of thought behind it, I was quick. And I said, listen, with a name like Sergio Petrucci, if I can't send an Alfa, an Alfa Romeo, well, there's going to be big problems for everybody in here, isn't there? And straight away, he just laughed around. And he said, you got the job. 
don't need to ask any more questions. And I think that's what he wanted, someone who was sharp, someone who was quick thinking, could think on their feet and respond in any situation. Because ultimately, if you're dealing with a customer and you're selling something and they come back with a um, an objection, that needs to be overcome. I think what they wanted, they wanted somebody that could handle that objection straight away. And I proved that from the start. And I, honestly, I sold loads and loads and loads of cars and... Can I, I'll just feed in there. You saw lots of cars and I know you did. But what was the premise behind selling those cars? Were they buying the car or were they buying Sergio's um, honesty, integrity? A little bit of both. I mean, if you ask anybody with a common sense about the motor trade, they'll say Fiat stands for fix it again tomorrow. So probably they were buying from Sergio and my personality. But I'd had an experience, and again, we always go back to life experiences. When I bought my first car, the, the salesman treated me like a king. Honestly, best cups of coffee, hot chocolates, rolled the red carpet out. When I drove off the forecourt, that was it. He'd washed his hands of us, and I went back when I had a couple of issues with the car, and he didn't want to know me, and that's all. What, what The only thing that I remembered, if I could treat people how I wish I'd been treated afterwards and the after-sales side of it, then... I knew I was going to fly, and I did. And there was many occasions when we had customers coming in who might have been their first car for the son or the daughter, or it might have been a car for the wife, the husband for that matter. I just treat them as though they were a family member, and it wasn't it wasn't too long before a lot of the, the customers that were coming in were starting to return for their second cars or bringing their families down, and they only wanted to deal with me because they knew that they were going to get honesty. I mean, uh, another example was a deaf family came in, and you can imagine they must have gone shopping for a car that have gone all over the place, and as soon as every other salesman found out they were deaf, it was going to be hard work for them to sell a car. So they just, you know, they must have been bounced from dealership to dealership. And then when I found them uh, wandering around on the forecourt, I went over and realised that they were deaf, and I didn't know how to do sign language or anything. But you know what, I've got to, I would make time, and I did make time for them. I must have spent about four hours with the people and uh, writing everything down so they understood everything. And where everyone else was flying around on a Saturday, it was the busiest day in the car trade. I made sure that I was going to sell these people a car, but I was going to sell it the right way and that they were going to have the best experience. And on the back of that, they were back forth. I was the person within the deaf and dub um, society, the, the Sunland Deaf Club. We used to get used to get people coming from there all the time because they knew they were going to get the re- the best treatment possible. And again, I'd drawn those values, whether it was my dad's family values or whether it was the values, the Vardy values that were instilled in us from a very, very, well, from, from my career. And that's exactly what happened. Sure. I thought you were uh, going to get me dad walking in there. <laughs> <laughs> I think what, also what teachers... Um, leaders, managers, um, people from power, they quite often forget. People have a memory and quite often they forget how they talk to people or what they say. And But the customer or the pupil um, or the employee quite often remembers that experience. But I want to move on. You were very successful in the car trade. What made you change from the car trade to securing a very good job at a radio station? So um, during my time in the car trade, I was a mentor to a few different people and who come in, 
young lads and I was asked to look after them and make sure that they were doing the job properly and that they followed the process. I, I moved away from Reg Vardy's after it, it was sold to a big PLC and uh, I went to work for Honda and it was a place that was a little bit like uh, a racehorse would go to after he'd finished winning all the Grand Nationals, you know. Honda was the, the holy grail, it was the slower life, it wasn't as fast-paced. Still give the customers the best experience, obviously, but Honda was just Honda. You know, they make boats, engines, so they were never going to break down like a Fiat would. <laughs> um, it was a safe bet. And then the lad that I was a mentor to came in the showroom and he told me he's got this fantastic job within the radio station. I thought, oh, that would be perfect for me. Uh, that would be perfect in the sense that everything about what he was telling me was pretty much what I dreamed about, the advertising, the network, and the business to business, the business to customer. And I thought, honestly, how how can I get a job like that? And you're right, I had a, a young family. I had Enzo, he'd just been born. And I saw loads and loads of men in the motor trade who'd been divorced and it was pretty much through the long hours, the weekends and not being there for the family to see them grow up. And that's one thing I wanted to make sure I'd realised at this point not everything was about money and commissions and high earning power. For me, this is when I started to realise what was important, family was important and being able to spend and make those memories. And anyway, he got me an interview and, well, spoke spoke from the heart and I was invited back for a second interview but the second interview was with a presentation and uh, a kit, I had to do a case study and it was about a new motor dealer coming to Sunderland from outside the region and I had to do a marketing campaign specifically surrounding about the radio so I, I put it together I had access to a recording studio as well, a family friend helped me produce the um, commercial because I start you know the it's coming it's here it's now here and it was a different audience for each commercial anyway I absolutely knocked the socks off and I'm you know I'm, I'm not just saying it Derek but seriously I've you know when you walk away from something that you cannot not get the job but the, the, the strange thing was I never heard from them for about a week or two and I was ringing them up and they wouldn't take my call thinking what did I do wrong and I honestly it was perfect the problem is they were in the process of getting rid of the lad who got me the interview to, to step into his shoes oh no and, uh, and I felt really really bad and when I did eventually get to speak to the lad um, I had no intention of that happening but he was understanding as well he was ready to move on to pastures new and he wished me well and stepped straight into his shoes and uh, I flew I flew because once again I applied the same um, process that I'd had from being six, seven years old, how I folded those towels, I was taught to sweep the floor in the salon at 10 years old. I was um, told people to look great when they put a shirt on in the shop, you know, that the jeans looked make their, made their butts look fantastic, you know, and all this. And, uh, yeah, I, I was soon the probably, well... I know, I, I know that the record that I put in there on, this, on the radio station's biggest bidder of all time, and it's through passion, through integrity, 
and making sure that I look after everybody. And I always had a an inkling to not sell things. If people are trying to sell something, then there's and there's always an afterthought. Is it money related? Is it commission focused? But I would go along the lines of if someone wanted to to buy something, then I could offer it to them. I would never sell it to them. And that's the that's what made me successful at the radio station. Can you share about some of the prizes that you secured with your hard work? Oh, yeah. At Vardy's, I won a trip to Marbella. Um, prior to that, I, I had it while I was at university, I had a little um, part-time job at More Than, the insurance company, and I won a trip to New York. Um all over the place. Oh, I, I had an intimate concert with Jamaraquai. That was pretty good And when I worked at the radio station. And, yeah, well, it was just a, a lovely, lovely experience. You've missed out one, though. What about the football tickets? <laughs> yes. So I won tickets to go and watch Real Madrid against Manchester City, and it was a, a wonderful occasion, but it was a prize that I'd actually instigated myself because I put the... The, the challenge down to the MD of the station at the time. And I said, listen, if I, if I smash the station record three months in a row, would you um, send me off to the Etihad and have an expenses-paid trip to watch two of the most entertaining football teams in the world? And anyway, I did it. I did it three months off the, off the belt. And um, I really enjoyed my time at Man City, and that's when... I used that opportunity to go and actually meet people from Manchester City. And I say meet people, you might be thinking of players or things like that, but it wasn't. It was the people behind the scenes, the commercial management, and how, because I wanted to see how I could potentially get value from them going forward. Um, didn't matter what experience I needed to draw on, I wanted to know that I had a contact at Manchester City if I ever needed it. You also mentioned about, you know, your time at the um, motor industry, the retail trade, uh, the radio station. You also worked for a, a very famous hotel in the northeast. But prior to the podcast, you mentioned you would go to work, and it wasn't Fiat or wasn't Alfa Romeo or um, um, another car make. You had in your mind, on your your mind's eye. Sergio's business, Sergio's radio station. Can you just expand upon that? Uh huh. Um, I did. I, doesn't matter where it where it was or what the make of the business was. In my own imagination, it said Sergio's car sales or Sergio's radio station, and it was because the reason I used to think like that was because if I felt it was my own, I would look after it more, a bit like a baby, really, and. It meant that every customer that I would ever see, I would always treat as though it was the last customer I would ever see. And by way of explaining that, I knew that they were going to get the best level of customer service. I would treat them like a celebrity. I really would. And I would be grateful for the fact that they came in that day. I mean, they could have been speaking to any of my colleagues, to be honest with you, but I wanted to make sure they knew how much I appreciated the fact that they come in but more so that they were sitting across a desk with me. And that's one thing I remember you, Sergio, from the very early days that I started teaching you. You were always attentive, always polite, always professional. Now I'm going to turn the clock back with my next question. 
I'm going to turn the clock back. How did you meet your wife, Emma? And did you use your trusted sales pitch? And can, are you prepared to share that um, on air? <laughs> Why, I, of course I will. <laughs> Anybody that's listening might want to use it in the future themselves. <laughs> I'm taking notes. <laughs> so I met Emma many, many years before we started dating. We used to go at the same school together and uh, I never saw her probably for another eight or nine years after that. I'd been to a football match at the Stadium of Light. I'd been uh, wined and dined. It was a corporate afternoon and then I'd made my way back through town and I was on my way home and I just thought, well, I'll pop in this bar here and I'll see uh, see if there's anybody in there I knew. And sure enough, there was Emma with her friends sitting there and I just went over a bit crack on and uh, find out what they were up to. Anyway, before they left, I asked Emma if she had any lipstick on her, Derek. Here you we know, go. I mean, oh, you might think, oh, just search your wear lipstick. And I said, uh, she looked at me with the same kind of curiosity and I said, no, no, I said, I would love to give you a little kiss. And if I kissed some of your lipstick off, I'd love to think that you could put some more on so I'd kiss it off again. And that was the cheesiest chat-up line in the world, wasn't it? Smooth as ice, you know. <laughs> but we're still married now, nearly 20 years later. Well, it was a deal-breaker. I'll, I'll give you that. Um, right. You've two lovely children, Enzo, you mentioned, and Luna. Uh-huh. Now, being a father is that light-switch moment, um, speaking from personal experience. So how did that influence you with your working career? Well, I mentioned before when Enzo was born, I, you know, he's a first born, he was the son, and that's when I, I realised I wanted to do everything I possibly could. And you might say, well, who would you compare yourself as a father figure? And I always looked at my dad. My dad was always working hard, hard to provide for me and my sister, um, hard to, to give us the values and give us the things that we we would always long for, but we'd have to work for them as well. But I wanted to be there for him. I wanted to see him. I wanted to take him to school. I wanted to pick him up from school. I wanted to watch him play football on a Saturday morning, like every dad would love to do. And I just felt as though working in the motor trade really was going to restrict my access to those kind of experiences. And that's when I made a, made a big decision to leave and to go into... Um, media sales and I did it and I was really proud but the you say the family and then we had um, oh, three or four years before our second child came along and Luna wow she came and well like on a wrecking ball you know beautiful little girl and and when she was born she was uh, she was just gorgeous and um it wasn't too long before we were going to be allowed to leave hospital until the paediatrician came round and listened to a heartbeat, and that's when they discovered there was an echo on a heartbeat and that she'd had two holes in her heart. They'd scanned it and showed us where the the blood would be leaking out from the heart, and that's when everything kind of crashed down on us to think, well, all, th- all good things come to an end, or why why us? This is the darkest time in our lives. Should be the happiest time in our lives. But you know what? The doctors weren't too faced because what they said was it's quite common that the, the holes might close on their own as the body would grow. So we had a bit of hope and a bit of faith in in everything, really. And I think that's when you just draw on all um, 
elements that could get you through it, really. We had two years of apprehension and that, and Luna was having to go to see the cardiologist team at a place called Up the Road. We'll see it quietly. That. Not at all. Oh, in a place called Newcastle. It's a Freeman Hospital and it's a world-class centre for heart surgery and children. And that's where we spent many weeks and consultations. And then it was shortly before our second birthday when we were told that Luna's heart was a ticking time bomb. And if they didn't act on it and operate, then it could potentially be fatal and she might have a cardiac arrest or... Again, we're throwing a little bit of a curveball there. Prior to that, when I was at the radio station, I brought my leg on a team-building day, and that was the probably the second most momentous occasion of my life. It was the worst time ever, and it was my first experience of lockdown. So I'd already, I had already had a dry run of lockdown and, and before COVID came, obviously. And, um, yeah, that's when I started to realise I was more of a cash cow to a business, more of a cash cow or a commodity, and that I was just a person that who would put figures on a revenue sheet uh, in my job. Um, but when Luna was admitted in the hospital, I'll never forget those times. And you know, I, I know in the deepest hearts of the people that I worked with that they had, they had us in their thoughts. But what I'll never ever forget, uh, sometimes I would get a text message through that week in hospital asking if I would bring any revenue into the station and that. And that's when I started to get a bit of a sour taste, you know, and it was horrendous. It really was. I'll never forget. Well, um, we took we took a journey to Newcastle and we it was on the Sunday night. I had to stay over in the parent accommodation block and Emma would lie by Luna's bedside as they'd prepared her for surgery the next day. And the next morning when I woke up and took that walk over to the Freeman Hospital to the heart unit, looking in the skies, the, honestly, Derek, the, the sunrise had just filled the sky full of fire, the clouds crashing into each other, but not a word, not a raindrop, not a sound, apart from the little birds tweeting in the trees. And, well, we all know what happened from that from that red sky moment. And, uh well, when when they took her down in uh, surgery and her hand slipped away from ours under the anaesthetic, that was, uh, just remember it like it was yesterday, probably filling up right now telling you that story. But, um, yeah, but it was a success and that's what we draw on. And quite a lot of trips to the local, um, what's the place called where you go and pray and that, you know, the chapel. The, sure. <laughs> the chapel, we... I didn't know where to go to. I had nobody to talk to, and there was nobody really. I mean, the nurses were there, but they had a job to do, and I'm sure they'd heard it all before. But I just, um, you know, I'm not somebody who's mega into faith and that, but I think when all the chips are down and you've got no one else to turn to, then hopefully somebody's watching down on us. And I think they were, because uh, she, she came home at the end of that week in time for a second birthday party, and... Uh, before I left the hospital, I had a word with the with the nurses and the doctors, and I just wanted to give my sign of appreciation. I tried to tip them, thinking I was in an Italian restaurant, you know. Uh, but apparently you can't tip a nurse in the NHS. Certainly not in the UK. <laughs> <laughs> so what they did tell me, if I wanted to do something, then I could go off and fundraise and do some things to, to help support and make life easier for other families or the nurses. 
So that was my intention. It was to go off and and to, to do some wonderful things. And I didn't do a thing until probably about nine months later when I got called out off one of Emma's friends. Said that I I promised to, to go and repay my my gratitude and I hadn't done anything. I needed to get my finger out and do it when I did it. And we had a, well, we had a party, really, and best way of describing it because I wasn't ever going to run a Great North run or swim the channel like David Walliams. <laughs> and uh, we did. We called it the Red Sky Ball and people came from all over. And uh, when I went to the hospital, I told told them my plans and that was the, another moment where somebody didn't believe in what I was capable of because they laughed. The people at the hospital, the people in the charity connected to the charity, Um yeah, they laughed and said it was impossible, especially when I told them that the event was going to be in three weeks' time. They said the planning, the prizes, the people, the tickets sold, and then I wouldn't be able to pull it together. Uh, I sold it out in three days, and it was... They didn't believe it. I said, well, you might want to come along and see for yourself, and I might need a bit of ha- you know, help in hand, sell a couple of raffle tickets on the night, and they did. And the draws just... I've still... Remember the day was incredible. We raised an absolute stack of money, and you might think, "How did you do it?" And that, that was, was my next question. Yeah, but it was, well, I was only going to be for fifty people or something. But when we'd sold fifty tickets, and then we'd sold a hundred, and then we'd sold two, three, four hundred people wanted to come. It kind of just snowballed, and the only other event we'd ever done was our wedding day, and Emma did most of that, but. I knew along the lines that we needed to have drinks reception, we needed to have some raffle prizes, we needed an auction prizes, and we needed to have good food and a good dance. And now working at the radio station, I had a, a little black book of telephone numbers of pop stars, and obviously I went through the alphabet, A to Z, start with Adele, she was busy. Again. Uh, went to Elton John, he was engaged. Came down to S in the alphabet, S for Sergio. Well, it wasn't. It was S for So Solid Crew. Can you remember them? Yeah, sure. 20, 21 seconds to go. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> and I rang Lisa Mafia and Romeo Dunn, and I said, listen, we're having this gig at the Stadium of Light. And uh, they said, oh, fantastic. And I said, how many people can you get in there? Now, I didn't tell them any lies when I said 47,500, and I muttered under my breath on a match day, so straight away they thought they were going to be singing in front of a huge capacity crowd and when they rocked up on a Friday night there was nobody around Southwick at all. Uh, we had some choice words and I said, look, look, you're here now, you might as well sing. And they did and they smashed it and loads of people had a great time and we raised uh, £64,000 on a Friday night in, in Southwick which was amazing because we were able to use that money to go and buy some spectacular equipment for the Freeman uh, Hospital, for Sunderland Royal Hospital and Teesides, James Cook Hospital, all these cardiac units. And that was the telling point because somebody at the end of that night told us never to do this again. It's impossible to repeat it. And that was the gauntlet laid down again. Um, We did it year after year. And here we are now sitting here. You 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 said that you've done it year after year. But those early days of organising the um, the events, um, how did you balance that with your day job as well, and also what was going on within the family 
Yeah, well, I didn't want... I mean, Luna was fixed, so okay. that, that was one good thing. She's still under consultation now, but it's just routine practice. But So the holes, the holes were fixed, her heart was fixed, so that wasn't an issue. The issue was um, I didn't want the Red Sky Ball to infiltrate into my work at my daily job, so I would always go to businesses that would never advertise on local radio they probably book through an agency in London. So I was dealing with the likes of spec savers. I was dealing with airlines. I was dealing with Barclays Bank and some big, big, big hefty uh, brands. Um, and some of them involved sending emails 11 o'clock at night and they would be picked up in Dubai and places like that and... Yeah, it was it was quite easy to be honest with you because once we'd done it once, we had the blueprint of how how it would run. Sure. The the most difficult thing now is trying to keep everybody happy because not everybody can come because we've only got limited capacity. You see, so we have a ballot system, a bit like how to get a ticket for Wimbledon to watch the tennis. We do the same for the Red Sky Ball, um, and if the people are lucky enough to be picked out of that. Uh, we'll give them an opportunity to buy the tickets within a time frame and we'll move on to the next one if they, they take too long. Now, with the opening introductions, I mentioned that... Um, where is it? Um, on a life-changing um, trajectory, or should I say life-saving trajectory, Sergio... You know, you've got very, very successful, both you and your wife, very, very successful um, Red Sky charity. Could you just share with me you know, a flavour of the impact that you've created through the charity? Absolutely. I mean, the Red Sky Foundation was something that came from our rapid growth. Um, a little bit of fear as well, because we were doing so much and raising so much money, I wanted to... Um, I wanted to either tie it all up and just concentrate on my own work, my own job. But then at the back of my mind, I was thinking this has got huge potential, huge potential to become something really special. And um, it's been hard work. It really is hard work because we've had to create a brand, first of all. We had to create an audience. And we had to pick the right audience. But most importantly, we had to have access to the parents and the families like us and uh, know that we were there to support them. So there was a guy who told us, he said, have you ever thought about turning Red Sky Ball, for want of a better word, because that's all it was. It was just an event. Have you ever thought about turning it into a proper charity? Because the amount of money that you're raising and handing over... You could actually get more uh, through gift aid and through, um, you know, lots of organisations would only work with us if we had a registered charity number. And I, to be honest, Eric, I didn't have the first, the foggiest idea on what running a charity would entail. And the more that I spoke to people, the more that they would turn me off the idea because it seemed like a minefield. And to have a charity, you needed a board of trustees, a constitution, you need to have protocol in place, you have processes in place, you had insurance, you had to have policies, you've got safeguarding, you've got uh, discrimination, 
it wasn't just a case of inviting people to have a celebratory dinner and then hand the money over. And when people started to hear about my plans, they used to laugh again and said it was impossible. A bit like the lady who laughed and said that that red sky ball in three weeks' time was an impossibility. Um, she would, she would drive me on as well because many. She was one of many that said what I was planning was impossible. But you know what? We've got the internet these days. We've got a mouth. We've got a pair of ears. And I went and asked the people who did know how to set this up, and I, I drew on their expertise and I drew on my determination and what I wanted to. What I wanted was the end goal. And I always remember people at the the radio station would be saying things like, where do you see this red sky ball? And when I told them my plans, they would laugh and and that would drive me on. I think for anyone else, they would just say, ah, oh, they're right. You know, but it was the doubt and the disbelief or the lack of credibility that people were going to give me to push on. Well, that's the driver and it still drives me to the day. I think it's that golden thread, isn't it, throughout your life. Um, all these um, barriers, you look upon it as a challenge that you're going to overcome them. But with regard to your charity, uh, Sergio, um, could you just kind of give kind of guesstimates on the number of equipment you've um, introduced in the NHS and also other pin impacts, like, you know, lives saved? So it wasn't uh, a couple of weeks ago. We'd tipped over the million pounds mark of how much money we'd raised for the hospitals. And I say the hospitals because it's plural now. We've we've bought machinery for Sunderland's neonatal ward. We've bought it for the James Cook Hospital. We've funded machinery and provided the money to buy machines into the Freeman Hospital. Not just in the children's heart unit, but also in the adults. Uh, coronary care units and I've been introduced to people whose lives have been directly saved as a direct impact from our work which is brilliant really to hear and the Northeast Ambulance Service alone gave me some stats and in the last 12 months our defibrillators that were being put out in the public places have saved over 1300 people's lives and that just to me tells the story in itself and certainly the biggest thing, Derek, is I don't have the time to stop and think how far we've come. And I do get loads of messages coming through and I read them probably as and when I can. It's normally late at night and when everyone else has gone to bed and I might just be flick flicking through some messages. But when you read, a man might be saying, you don't know what you've done for my son. Um, even whether it's like a child at a, a primary school, when I've gone to visit and tell them the Red Sky story and to tell them how to do life-saving techniques on CBR, the confidence that I'm giving these young children in, in education is just mind-blowing, really, considering that everybody said this wasn't a possibility because I didn't have a team. I didn't have, I didn't have employees, I didn't have officers, I didn't have anything, really. I didn't have any infra infrastructure. And when I applied for the charitable status, originally I was knocked back again. <laughs> so I had somebody else saying I couldn't get that charitable status because we weren't doing enough things in the community 
sort of rewrite that proposition and the constitution to say that we would do things in the community. Well, the only thing I thought about what we could have done was we'll put these defibs into public areas and we'll go and visit schools, communities, church halls, workplaces, and we'll show them how to use them free of charge. And well, as soon as I wrote that, the impact that we were going to have on communities, they give us the charitable status, but when they give us that status, they give us a, on a special day. Want to have a guess? Well, it, it certainly made a huge impact um, on a national scale. Um, and w- what I'm leading to, Sergio, is um, I've seen many pictures of you on social media wearing a top top hat and tails. So I guess you know where I'm navigating you into now. Um, the number 10s or the Queen's Garden Party, number 10s invite, and more recently been awarded the MBE from King Charles, um, which we've, you, know, you brought your um, MBE medal in today, which is um, um, very, very, very impressive. Um, w- did this come as a shock to you or did you feel as though that because of your impact you were heading down that route? Um, I am, yeah, it is a shock to be fair. And it's, I never thought that we'd be recognised on a on a national level as what we have been. Um, we first experienced Buckingham Palace in 2018 when we were invited to the Queen's Garden Party, and that was something else. And I, I hired a suit and a top hat and tails for that as well. I think it was only a handful of people who'd gone to that effort. Um, but you know what? I, at the time, I, I thought, well, I'm never going to get the chance to come back here again, so I'm going to maximise this. Because all I wanted was a nice picture of me and Emma looking brilliant you know and we got it and we met you know met the queen and saw the uh william and kate and had the best sandwiches in the world you know the the crusts were cut off the cucumber was all the same uh it's just lovely a lovely day and it was in recognition for the short term we'd only done two red sky balls before that but that's the impact we'd made we'd been recognized and put forward to go and attend um and then last, well, obviously, I, I touched on the day that we got charitable status was the day of lockdown. And um, throughout COVID, we were limited to what we could do to fundraise, but we did have a pot of money available. And we were approached by the NHS at South Tyneside and Sunderland NHS Trust to say their COVID wards were being overrun with patients, but they didn't have the defibrillators that they needed to to cope with the the amount of people that they had coming through the doors. So they asked if we would contribute, and we did. We spent, I think it was about £30,000 worth of our money on defibrillators for the NHS so they can save people's lives in in COVID. So while you had uh, lots of people doing innovative stuff on the internet, like Joe Wicks and his fitness, or... You know, you've got that Captain Tom, you've got the guy who was doing skips in his garden. You had loads of people doing innovative things just to support the NHS. Um, we did something that was directly impactful on patients' lives and saving them from cardiac arrest. And then we, Emma and I got a point of light award from the government. And you talk, <laughs> I'll share this story with you because it is quite powerful as well as motivational because we got this point of light and it came from Boris, okay? 
and it came from Boris and it was signed from him and f- could have been from Mickey Mouse to be honest with you but it was stamped down on the street in recognition from for the work that we've done and uh, I thought you know what I've got we've got this award and it's signed by him so I rang down on the street and I said thanks for the certificate first and foremost really appreciate it but I would have loved to have been presented by the Prime Minister with the award and it's just come in the post and it's a bit of a letdown really she started laughing on the phone. She said, well, where, where are you going with this? And I said, well, I want to meet the Prime Minister and I want him to hand it to us both. And he, she started laughing. She went, you've never done that before. I said, well, there's always a first time for everything. And from that phone call, that she put the phone down, I would ring her probably every couple of months, two or three months, and tell her what we'd done and what we did that was impactful. You know, even if we got recognition or we'd saved a life or I would share it with the woman that was going to be inviting us to Downing Street because that was my whole goal Um, anyway sure enough I said listen I seen you sent Boris up here to Hartlepool he was trying to do the levelling up thing for the northeast of England I said why don't you give us a heads up and we'll go and meet them and he, I'll take the piece of paper along. We'll just get a photograph again for the mantelpiece for the grandchildren, you know. And uh, she started laughing again. I said, listen, I said, if it's not going to happen, this Grand Central put a, put a train on from Sunderland at King's Cross every day. We can jump on a train pretty much any time and come and, and we'll come and see him if he's not going to come and see us. And she was laughing all the time. And then, lo and behold, I thought it was a, I thought it was a joke email, to be honest with you. It was in my spam box. And I opened it, it was from Downland Street, and it was an invitation to Boris Johnson's last garden party. Obviously, it was one of the ones he was allowed to have. Declared. Uh-huh. And, uh, sure, yeah, and it didn't give us much time. It was like three days' time. And we went down there, and it was summer last year, and he spent a bit of time talking to us. But we are in the back garden where world leaders had stood. We are in the company of the Ukrainian ambassador at the UK, in the company of other people who've done amazing things. And there was only about 50 or 60 people there. And it was so, so special. And I thought that was it. I thought that was it. And then, uh, boom, we get a letter from uh, the, the King's Lieutenant or Lieutenant and uh, said that we've been nominated for a, an MBE and that the King would like to offer it to us. And we're like, in the in the king's first birthday honours from his coronation, and although they said if you tell anybody we can revoke it, so I couldn't even tell my mum and dad about it until it was announced <laughs> in the papers. I know, and me trying to keep a secret was like <laughs> trying to keep a bull out the china shop. You know, it's uh, it was just wonderful, a wonderful experience, and to go down there because we both got it, and we're both ex students of Sunderland University, we're both graduates, right? But to go down there with our parents in tour and our two children in tour was doubly important to me because they've been a part of this journey. And we went for a nice meal after after the presentation. And I did, I stood up and I said, listen, I said, if it wasn't for the support of both parents, then none of this would have happened. An amazing, amazing story. And, um, you know... Before we before I did the podcast, I thought, I bet you Sergio's going to get emotional again. While you were talking, I had to switch my mic off. Um, 
<laughs> yes. Well, yeah. you know, I try and leave an impression wherever I go. If I could give any students a glimmer of hope or a little bit of determination, please listen to this because and, and come and have a chat. And I'm not hard to find, but I, I could share this story a million times and it would still never touch the surface. But I always try and leave an impression wherever I go. And even with King Charles, I left one with him as well because I told him that I was determined to bring a defibrillator down to the palace. He said he, he thought that they had it covered until I explained. I said, you've got three in the palace. I've already done my homework. I said, I wouldn't like to run for the nearest one from here, would you? And he started chuckling and I said, I'll tell you what, Charles, you can put it wherever you like. You're the king. I said, you could even put it in Camilla's handbag while she's following you around, knowing that you've got peace of mind. You'll be sorted if you ever had a cardiac arrest. And he started laughing, you see. And um, after that, the press team from the palace pulled us to one side and said, we'd love to run a story about about how far you've come. An amazing, an amazing journey, which, which hasn't finished. Just one other point, you know, the guesstimate, 1,300 lives, an amazing contribution. Last question. You mentioned in our previous discussions, and I think you touched upon it in the, the podcast today, fear of failure. I think that's been a driving force for you. Would you agree? 100%. Wherever I've gone, I've always wanted to be the best. Whether it's a, a target-driven role I've had, I felt as though if I didn't hit the target, I would uh, I would have failed. doesn't matter how well it was, that I, whatever it was I was doing... And those people that put doubt or try to put a, a plant a seed of doubt to say something wasn't possible, that's the other driver. I I have this, well, it's an imaginary little voice that I keep hearing, you know, saying, you can't do that. It'll never happen. Who do you think you are? Well, I'm Sergio from Sutherland. <laughs> Sergio, yes. Um, I, could, I could not agree more. And also the university has um, a strapline um, or a mantra um, tomorrow's change maker, and you certainly and Emma, your lovely wife, are key case studies on how to create something from nothing and overcome adversity. And and on behalf of the University of Sunderland, um, the team here at Spark, we wish you the very best of luck. And we'll we'll still bump into each other, and I very much look forward to the next chapter, Sergio. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Thanks for having me and uh, good luck everybody if you study, study hard and don't give up. Thank you.